0: That's what What's the idea? Well, What's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, ah, what's the big idea What's the idea Welcome back to what's the big idea team I've been away for a couple of months and I'm gonna tell you why, but I'm very excited to be back doing the show again and I promise that we're gonna have a lot of great episodes coming out in the next weeks and months. Um, our guest today is Michael Hebb, who's an incredible community builder, uh, entrepreneur, restaurateur, and what we're talking about today is, drumroll, death. And the reason that we're talking about death, as Michael would say, is because when we talk about death, we can live a better life. And Michael has uh, created a movement called Death Over Dinner. They've helped more than a million people to participate in these conversations about death over dinner. And they created this handy tool that allows anyone to create one of these dinners. It's linked in the show notes. He's got incredible stories about how these conversations have transformed people's lives, their families, their relationships. Um, As he started to become more familiar with death, he also saw this, this wide hole in the industry of end of life. What were people doing to prepare for death? How were people uh, handling some of the more pragmatic issues of, do I want to be buried? Do I want to get cremated? Uh, what are my options to do this in a sustainable fashion? How do I uh, honor my, my family, my relationships, ritualistically moving forward? How do I want to be celebrated, remembered? Uh, all these different things. So it's this beautiful blend of the esoteric and the spiritual um philosophically how do we want to relate to death and then the pragmatic of how do i want to go out how do i want to be remembered and how can i make it easier on the people i love to do this and so um, that's what you have to look forward to on the show today and it's amazing and i also just wanted to stop for a moment and acknowledge that i've been away from the podcast for about the past two and a half months and so it was this elongated break and i wanted to quickly tell you what happened because I've had this really intense, miraculous two and a half months with my company Tribute. Um, So for the past two years, I have been working on Tribute, which for those of you who are new, is my collaborative video montage creator, wake up on your birthday, everyone you know sent you a one minute video telling you why you're awesome. So we've given hundreds of thousands of these. And uh, over the past two years, it got kind of tough. Um... We were making some money, but not enough for my co-founder and I to raise young families in Brooklyn. And so my co-founder gets another job. He's working part-time. I'm focused on my coaching, my consulting, my facilitating, but we really believe in the project and we're continuing to put energy into it because we believe in where it's going. And in the middle of March, uh, I get my traffic report every morning and I see this massive spike. Traffic doubled the day before. I was like, oh, cool. We have a big tribute on the site. And then the next day I get my traffic report, traffic doubled again. And this is about the time that I realize that we're in quarantine now and that no one is going to be able to celebrate graduations, weddings, birthdays. We are literally locked down in most of the country and people are going to need tribute to celebrate the people that they care about. And we decided to make the platform completely free for our users. So it's usually $25 baseline price. And we we decided to make it free. And over the next three months, something wild happened. In 2019, we did 2,500 tributes over the entire year, 2,500 customers that that purchased tributes. In the past three months, we've done more than 30,000 tributes. We went from being a five person company to at our peak. We had 120 people, including our video editors and our contractors. We built that team to over 100 in about a month and a half. And it was absolutely the, the hardest I had ever worked, one of the most exciting periods. But the reason I tell that story is because we, we got coverage and good housekeeping and USA Today and Inc. wrote about our resurgence. But the most important piece of that story that I wanted to share is simply that it was not really working for the past two years. Is that we've been working on this project for six years to get to this point. And ultimately what I realized looking back is that if I didn't care so deeply about this project, if I didn't feel that it was so linked to my dharma, my contribution, what I wanted to do here, I would have given up two years ago. There's no way I would have continued to spend my free time contributing and and putting my effort into this business and that's ultimately what helped us to stay alive, to get to this point where, you know, now the organization is really thriving and we have an opportunity to build something really special. So whatever you might be working on, if it hasn't happened yet, um, just remember, you have time, keep going. It doesn't have to happen all at once, but as long as you continue to do the things that you love and trust that it will happen in time, it will. So. Without further ado, let's get to our guest today. Michael Hebb, thank you for your patience. This is What's the Big Idea. Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Very excited to have Michael Hebb joining us today. Michael, how are you doing? Doing great. And where are we reaching you today?
1: Oh, the fine city of Seattle,
0: Washington. And how'd you land in Seattle?
1: Wow, I, well, I've been in the Pacific Northwest pretty much my whole life. Um, it's been this anchor, and I've been in Seattle the last 15, 16 years, and I have kids here, and <laughs> it's just, it's just home. I, I I lived in Maine for a little while and traveled, uh, you know, ex- all the time. But
0: so, what was what was the moment that you you fell in love with the Pacific Northwest? When did it become home?
1: I think it's it's there's never been a moment; it's always just been an is sort of thing. Um, I I feel like the the mountains and the rivers and the oceans and um, just the, the the thing that is the Pacific Northwest. Which yeah, there's incredible culture. Um, it's almost like these little villages of cultures, culture, and then there's this immense presence of wilderness. Um, and really diverse wilderness. And that feels like it's as much a part of me or more a part of me than, you know, any other aspect of my life. So
0: hmm. I love, I love that idea of it just is, it, it reminds me of, uh, I remember when, when Hero was born and people would ask me what it's like to be a dad. And I would always say, cause it just felt true. It's like, well, I felt like I was already a dad before I had Hero. Because it was like that part of my life experience, like in my storyline, even before it happened, even like before I knew Mickey, really, I just could feel that that was, that is like I'm a dad. And so there is something beyond words. Like I just kind of knew that. I kind of get that that feeling when you talk about the pack Northwest.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're a nurturer from what I know about you, Andrew. (laughs) You like to take care of people. And cool. see, them, see them thrive, and so of course you were the the dad. The dad gene was already there. <laughs>
0: <a> <laughs> Thank you, brother. Well, and and so people who listen to the show know that oftentimes before I start my conversations, I share a little appreciation for the guest and and why I'm excited to have the conversation. And one of the things that I, I mentioned to you was how how you've shown up in the world and how I've seen you kind of carry yourself with this presence, and so many people who I respect. Um, you know, have a have a deep level of love and respect for, for who you are and the things that you've brought into the world. And so I'm also curious because you do so many things, but how do you describe what you do?
1: <laughs> I, I don't. It's a gift. It's not a, um, it, it's a gift to not be reduced to a single thing, um, but it it really is problematic at cocktail parties or in elevators. Um, it, well, it was <laughs> good, good.
0: No, I was going to say, and I, and I appreciate that. And I'm curious if you if you trace back, kind of the the creations, the communities, the the writing, like is there thematically a, a through line through it all that that ties them all together in some way?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's gonna sound really, um, maybe a little bit like too much or something, um, or too ambitious. Um, but it, it it is also a very humble statement, and it comes down to something that um, Stuart Brand, the um, author or creator of the Whole Earth Catalog, um, said once, and he said, "My client is civilization," um, and for some reason, you know, since I was really 17, 18, eighteen, I've had this perspective that I just wake up and I and I do work that um, is, in some way, for the world. Not not that I'm think that it has to impact the whole world, or I think that I do. Just like that's my orientation. It's not like I need to make sure X um, group of people gets Y. It's just how does how do I wake up and make sure the world is getting more of what it needs and for me that's um self-expression um freedom to um, reverse repression um and to help empower people um and live a little bit less fearlessly um and that can take a lot of you've seen a few of them that can take a lot of different um titles and modes and (laughs) ways of creating so I've dabbled,
0: <laughs> yeah, and you you said that kind of something slipped in as like that that just became your orientation when you were seventeen or eighteen. I'm curious if you can point to anything that was kind of a a trigger for that shift or that kind of opening to that,
1: yeah, and I mean it, um spoiler alert for your guests um we're gonna be talking about death, and maybe they already know that um they're well aware. <laughs>
0: Okay, great.
1: (laughs) Um, So my father um, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was in second grade. um, And life got very difficult and very weird um, at that point. I mean, I had nothing to compare it to. But um, for the the last seven years of his life, until I was 13, um, things were um, very different from my peers, but I'd still kind of remained intact in my peer group. And, um, as you know, one tries to do mostly wants to do when you're a child, right? Um, you define yourself in your peer group. Um, and when my father died when I was 13, he died on Halloween. Um, and I, I woke up actually the moment he died 3:43 AM. Um, I didn't know why I was up and later found out that was when his heart stopped. But, um, I, I went to school that day because I didn't know what else to do and it was Halloween and I actually went out with friends and did what 13 um, year old kids do, like essentially break shit and cause trouble. Um, uh, and I didn't tell anybody um, because I didn't think that anybody could hold the weight. Um, and there's this thing that happened on that day as I was out on Halloween running around there, there was this distance, there's this like, gap between me and my friends. And I felt like um, I was seeing them and then seeing myself from not necessarily an objective view, but there was at least this skip in the music. Um, and I wasn't, you know, with the herd, <laughs> like with the back. And I started asking um, myself and the world some really hard questions. And I think that that's where it kind of began and I started to be very interested in, um, Eastern mysticism, well, mysticism in general and Eastern spirituality and, um, meditation and, um, just began a route, um, that really I started, I think it started to form more clearly when I was 17, 18, 19. Um, and, and it was, it was this orientation towards there's something much larger than just, um, my friends and my context that I'm
0: living in right now. That's beautiful. And I'm curious, you talk about that that separation that existed and kind of holding on to that grief and, and so many of the things that you were processing kind of in the aftermath that your father's passing. I'm curious how your journey opened you up to share your full self and where in your journey you feel like you you reached that point where you started to, because you talked about self-expression, being one of these anchors into your, your experience and, and your contribution. I'm curious because you have, you have kind of a, a presence and a confidence that I really admire. I'm curious where in your journey you started to express yourself authentically and, and fully.
1: Yeah. Well, it would have appeared outwardly in my like, um, mid to late twenties. Um, I was getting a great deal of success in the, in the food and culture space with these projects that we were doing in Portland and that gained international attention. Um, but it was really, um, it was after that, all of those projects failed, which they did really significantly. I lost everything when I was 28. Wow. I had, uh, about a hundred employees. We were selling about 10 million a year, um, in sales at our different, um, restaurants and food enterprises. Um, we were, of the epicenter of the media and culture creation around food and restaurants, and um, and then it all failed magnificently, um, and lost everything, um, and was had to go through. Definitely, I mean, people talk about the dark night of the soul, and this was like the the dark three years of this <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it came out the other side and, um, and started, um, once again, manifesting and creating things, but there was a moment, um, and I was out actually in Eden, Utah, a place where we both spent some time, um, on this hike. And I had this complete revelation, um, just kind of hit me all at once. And I saw that I had been orienting what I was doing in the world in this very Western kind of artist um wanting to be like what, more in the line of like Marcel Duchamp or um Henry Miller like this you know causing trouble in a western way um you <laughs> had and, and realized that my my orientation needed to change entirely to one around healing um so my work went from being about art and culture um and that kind of disruption, um, to thinking about and really spending all my time thinking and manifesting around healing. Um, and, and that was, was about 12 years ago. Um, and then, and then, the, then you have to go through the long process of getting into integrity in your life if you're going to work in the healing space. But my projects changed from this, like, how can we make it like, uh, Socrates or Paris or <laughs> Manhattan or New York to like, how can this be about people living in their heart and people um, being able to express themselves completely um, in this lifetime?
0: I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I almost want to go back to it from moment. you just mentioned to be in a, a place of, of teaching, of, of offering wisdom, you know, with so many more people, becoming coaches and facilitators and community builders. I'm curious, you know, when you talk about that process of coming back into integrity, what does that mean to you personally?
1: I mean, a lot of things I've been around. Um, I mean, we're all wounded healers. If we're in the healing space, but I've been around a lot of healers that maybe haven't done enough healing um, to be in a position of healing as many people as they are currently in. <laughs> Um, and, and I, I mean, that's, I have, I've never put myself out as the, you know, to say I'm, I work as a healer is something I don't say publicly very often. I, I try to build projects that allow, um, others to heal themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so the, instead of this proscenium model or this stage model or directional model, for me, it's very much about, um, unlocking Um, what is already inside someone, giving people the tools, um, and the framework so that they can, um, get to wholeness, whatever that might mean, um, more quickly without even knowing my name, really. Um, and so, but to, for the, you know, to do that work and to try to build, um, models and, uh, and to have your empathy be aligned, you know, you have to look at, you know who you are in the world, how you are in the world. Um, one thing was it was funny, my dear friend um, Shauna Shapiro. I don't know if you ever had Shauna on the call, but she's this, or on the uh, on the podcast. But she's this extraordinary meditation teacher. Um, and Shauna and I, we challenged each other like, let's go one week um, where we only everything that we say is honest. Um, and we were were aware of every lie exaggeration, white lie, you know, and, and maybe we'll, maybe there'll be one little exaggeration or two or three, but we'll know it and we'll feel it. And so we did that for a week and then we extended it to a month. Um, and we had our, our friend Ingrid Saunders make us little, um, uh, honesty, um, (laughs) bracelet. So we could be reminded, um, and then it was like, oh, no, this isn't a week or a month. This is just a practice, right? And it's not that I, there are occasions that I'm like, oh, well, that was a, that was a little bit off what I just said. Um, but it's pretty rare, and I know it every time. Um, that was one practice of just making sure what was coming out
0: of my mouth was true. What I, my, one of my mentors in the world of coaching, she has a definition for confidence that I've always loved and it's confidence is respecting yourself and telling the truth. Yeah. Which to me was, was such a more kind of actional. like you use the word orientation, which I really like, but that orientation of, am I, am I aligned right now? Am I proud of how I'm showing up? And if, am I just sharing what is? Versus, you know, for me personally, a lot of my my life early on was in the world of like strategic communications and packaging communications and presentations and how you'd show up so that you could achieve outcomes versus just a a journey back to what is and getting out of the way of kind of letting that be, which to channel real confidence, I think is really this journey back to respecting oneself and then telling the truth.
1: Yeah, and I think really understanding why it is you're doing something. Um, is important too. And that takes, that takes a lot of, um, of, of deep excavation work. Um, and it's not like we, um, that's a question you can keep excavating around. <laughs> why, why am I doing this? Um, but, but really when you are, um, taking responsibility for other humans experience, like when you you mentioned that you've seen me convene people and I've done a lot of that, um, Say let's come together for these reasons, um, or let's just come together. Period. Um, and then I have to really check myself um, on why why is it that I want this group together? What what is motivating me? Um, and take a long and hard look at at those um, motivations. I think there's a lot of people that are convening people for the gaining, you know, self, uh, you know, for self-aggrandizement or to enrich themselves. And that can be fine if they're clear about it, right? But there's a lot of mis messaging <laughs> in the world. Uh, and Boy, so I wanted to get very clear.
0: And, and I'm curious, and then, you know, I'm excited to, to dive into EOL and spend the majority of our time on that. But I'd be remiss not to, you talked about convening people. And I would say that many people I know think of you as as this consummate community builder. And organizer of humans, and and I'm curious. It's you. You had just talked about creating space for people to facilitate their own healing, and so I'm curious how building community, bringing people together, is a part of that. And and as you've done so much of it, how do you think about bringing people together effectively? And it feels like a very natural process, but if you think about what the things are that allow you to do that. Kind of effectively as a contribution, what comes to mind for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I've used the, the dinner table as a as a natural convener. and a lot of people do, and they have for a long time because it makes a lot of sense. It's, kind of, it's what, <laughs> <laughs> we want we want that experience. We want to be gathered around a table, sharing food, sharing stories, um, sharing the
0: human, right? Which just just for some context here, because yeah, this no, is my my first introduction. To Michael is him cooking for a room of 80 people and just like this gentle kitchen general who's organizing 20 people and just this stunning meal comes out, you know, right when it's supposed to and was amazing. So that was my first impression was kind of just watching you in awe. And actually that was a dinner where I met one of my my best friends, Alex Benayan. So I will always remember you convening that meal where I connected with who would then become one of my best men at my wedding.
1: <laughs> I love Alex, and I love. Him. <laughs> I had some part in that.
0: Um, the dinner table
1: was well, yeah, the dinner table, and I, you know, I really wanted to understand the the dinner table from my backgrounds in architecture and the classics, and um, and I wanted to understand what it was like. I really wasn't interested in restaurants and fine dining and food service. I was interested in the table, um, and so because it's it has been. It, it's the first internet um it's the first art <laughs> it's it's all of these things it's a technology um and you know literally cooking food and concentrating calories is what gave us the evolutionary leap from ape to man um and you know our our brains used to be much smaller until we figured out that we could cook and concentrate calories um, but nonetheless, I mean, we we could talk the whole hour on just the the table and and food. But um, the the thing you know that comes to mind first is who am I being when I'm when I'm cooking food for people? What is what does the kitchen feel like? You know, because a lot of people will be like, I'm going to throw this dinner, or I'm going to have a dinner party, or I'm going to do a dinner series, or start a supper club, and then if you go into their kitchen before. Like, where did the food come from? Did they pull it from the earth themselves? Did they get it from someone they know? Do they have a heart relationship with that person? Um, what is the music that's playing? Are people happy? Are they stressed? Um, are they connecting? Um, are they having, if they're having a beautiful time and it feels beautiful in the kitchen, the food is going to feel really good as people eat it and it sits in their their bodies. Like, food is very porous. Um, it really does pick up our emotions. Um, and, and so, like, make that right. Um, and then get people involved, you know, um, give them tasks, make them set the table, um, make them do the dishes, um, give them some reason to show up. People don't want to just be served. Um, it's kind of embarrassing. Sometimes it's nice, but generally speaking, in a community, it's a little embarrassing to just be like, I've hired this person and I'm getting served and I'm, my job is just to sit here and be witty. Um, it's like they want, they want, they want to be actively involved. And in that active involvement, you actually see people's personality and character and more of them show up. Um, and so that's what I want to do is like, how do you, how do you make the human um, in somebody visible? Um, because when the human's visible, people fall in love. Because people are inherently beautiful. It's just there's often a lot of shit getting in the way.
0: Beautiful, man. It's setting the the context for connection. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so often we do healing and connection work um, in isolation in our therapist's office, which is great. Highly recommend therapy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Or we go to ethylene um and or we go to landmark or we go and to you know whatever um we go in and have an ayahuasca ceremony with a bunch of people we don't know um and we have this incredible experience with a group of strangers that and we try to take that consciousness back into our lives so a lot of our healing's done in isolation or with strangers and for me it was like how do i get people to do the most important healing work with their family and their friends um, so it can have them it can change the dynamics um, in their lives where they live every day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And even, even when I think back to that dinner at some, I think that they may, they may have had like prompts on the table or something like that. And my friend, my friend, Ben, who runs the events company splash, he always talks about it as the difference between an event and an experience and an event it's like you go somewhere, you consume something, and an experience is something where you go and you contribute to it. And it's that little shift of as an organizer, like always thinking about how are people contributing to this? Like how does this become a dialogue instead of a monologue? Which is one of the simplest things that I think organizers can can do to make their their events experiences and, and much better for everyone there. Yeah, I think that's a powerful distinction. Um, and, and so and so, and I'm curious if we can track, I love, I love the idea of moments of like taking us back into a moment of time. And so I've already shared a little bit about my own experience with death over dinner uh, in the intro. And so they're they're somewhat familiar with your work, but I'm curious when your work, your anchor, your orientation shifted towards death. When did that come into your frame as something that was maybe first just important or interesting for you to explore or investigate more deeply. What sent you down that path?
1: Well, I mean, it was always there because it, it had been such a defining part of my childhood. Um, I lost my father. I lost my um, best friend in a skiing accident um, a year before my father died. Um, my cat got run over. I mean, it was like, um, the world was telling me something that like <laughs> Beth, <laughs> was part of my Genesis story um, for sure. Um, I think that where it really found its anchor um, was when I took a teaching position at the University of Washington um, in their Graduate School of Communications, and they'd given me this really wide, um, expansive um, teaching fellowship, uh, you know, title with the idea you know, my, my marching orders were really interesting. They were, how do you scale, um, experience? How do you scale the dinner table? Um, right. So the dinner table we've been talking about is really defined by intimacy. Um, it's not defined by scale. Um, there, you know, we think about the weddings you've been to when there's hundred, so 150 tables, not your most memorable meal generally. Sure. Um, right. Like <laughs> you like to be at a table with eight friends, seven friends, five friends, locked in extraordinary conversation in an amazing location or something's happening that's making it really, you know, memorable. So how do you scale that experience? Um, How do you, you know, make the finite infinite? And it started with doing some really fun but um, off, uh, you know, just some failures, let's say. So I reached out to my friend Chase Jarvis, who's an um, incredible photographer and founder of Creative Live, and, and I was like, Chase, how are we going to – let's do some things together. And so we ended up um, putting cameras in the table, um, you know, with Chase curating what the cameras were and, like, can, is, are, can we make the table a moment of broadcast? And I was like, no, that didn't work. <laughs> and then, like, I went to my friend Kate Bailey, who created the – one of the people who created the Microsoft Surface. Right. Incredible designer and technologist. And we're like, how do we make the camera, um, a way of collecting memories and like really integrate, um, uh, you know, microphones and, uh, cameras into the table in a way where it doesn't, it's almost, you almost forget about it. Right. And, and then it's part of this collective memory. And that was beautiful. Um, and did that with uh, Lorenzo trefethan out at his vineyard for a whole series. And I was like, no, that's not right.
0: <laughs>
1: um, and then we ultimately had another great designer, uh, Tom Kundig, um, the famous architect, designed this incredible table for us because I was like, we're going to have a conversation about death. <laughs> and we need a space and I need a table. And Tom and his team design this table. I mean, how nice to have such great friends. But um, <laughs> like, we designed this table and ran this class, um, which was about um, expanding this this conversation about death, table by table, um, and learning essentially how we create the board game um, that became Death Over Dinner. Um, how do we how do we make it powerful enough? that we give you this framework and that you're going to have an experience where, you know, 99 out of hundred times, or hopefully hundred out of hundred times, it's going to be transformative. Um, so, so when you,
0: when you were setting off for that first conversation, was it because it was something that you were excited to explore or was it because you had already had a conversation around death that was significant for you? i like a, a dinner conversation around death or just a single conversation perhaps.
1: Well, what i would learned in doing these dinners, like you mentioned, you were at a dinner for 80. Um, I, I've been doing dinners with um, all kinds of folks, uh, global leaders, presidents, Nobel Prize winners, et cetera, um, for the last 20 years. Um, really looking at how, what are the most impactful conversations that we can have? And I found out a lot of things. Um, one is um, it everybody shines um if you allow them a space to be vulnerable um especially powerful people don't tend to be asked to be vulnerable aren't um in a in a moment um uh, where vulnerability comes to the surface (laughs) And it reminds me alex uh, your dear friend alex benayan and i were at a dinner not too long ago with uh with Jeff Bezos um, that I organized because Bezos wanted to meet Alice Waters, or no, Alice Waters wanted to meet Bezos, mm-hmm. and I was like, mm, "Alice, long shot." But <laughs> 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 so I called up Elliot Visnau, and he was like, mm, "Long shot," and then it happened, um, and we all got together. And I help
0: people understand who Alice Waters is in, for people who don't know.
1: Um, Alice Waters is essentially the, um, the the mother of farm to table food and cooking and organic food um in the US.
0: This is incredible. Yeah.
1: And and Bezos had just bought and I haven't really told this story um outwardly. So this is we've got we've got a good one people. Um you okay, got exclusive okay. the setting was and it actually does get around to the co- the question about death. Um but we're going to have a fun story in the meantime. And so it was during Summit LA 17 and Alice wanted to meet um Bezos because he had just bought Whole Foods and and she really thought I I have an imp- I have an opportunity to impact how the future of Whole Foods if I can get some time alone with him and Bezos agreed and I had to take Alice aside and be like okay this is not the time to tell you know you got to make friends <laughs> <first>, right <laughs> let's all get to be friends and then you can tell him exactly what he's doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um and she agreed to that and so um elliot and i put together a table that was um tim ferris and dream hampton and alex benayan um and sanjan the um from the uh, con- from conservation international and bezos and his brother um and it was this amazing group of people and then i was like fuck <laughs> okay what, are, what am i gonna do with them right like we've got these great people at a table how are they all going to become friends? And so I decided the question that I'd start with was, um, when's the last time you cried tears of joy? Hmm. And, and lo and behold, I mean, what a powerful thing for people to share about. Um, you see them, like you see their whole range um, of, of who they are. And it got to Bezos and he cried at the table, like beautifully shared about his kids. And how proud of he was how he is of his kids, and literally watching this the wealthiest man in the world, maybe the history of the world, just crying at the table—amazing. <laughs> um, and and then uh, Tim Ferriss asked the next question, which was what is which is also a great dinner conversation. Um, what is the book that you have given to most people? Yeah, um, which was a great it was a great question. It was a great like contextual genius question to ask the founder of Amazon <laughs> 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 perspective totally. uh, so uh, to answer your question why why death um, It vulnerability the opportunity to be vulnerable um, is the thing that connects people more powerfully than anything else it's the most powerful medicine and in the range of conversations that you can have um, death um, is the one that is still safest, um, that um, evokes the most vulnerability and thus the most
0: human connection and thus the most love. And how do you define vulnerability?
1: Vulnerability is um, very easy to find, but one of those squishy terms that no one tends to define, right? Like they say, be vulnerable, but no one tells you how.
0: How about, can I I ask that question differently? Yeah. What is vulnerability to you?
1: Yeah. So it's, I'll just give you the, um, the, the how to, um, and then it explains the, what it is. Um, when somebody asks you a question and you think about the thing that you want to say, and then you edit it and, and, and don't say it is not being vulnerable. Um, when you actually do move through your fear and stay it, um, and it doesn't even there maybe doesn't even need to be a question. But when you do say something that you're afraid to say, and you step over that fear, that that line in the sand is is the line around vulnerability. Um, and so that can look like a lot of different things. Um, but when we tell people, that, you know, uh, you know, death over dinner at the events or the dinners, it's just like it's a race to the bottom; <laughs> the most vulnerable wins. Um, step over that and i have to every time i'm hosting a dinner even though i've done hundreds i have to constantly search for what can i step over Um, where is fear constricting my expression because if i model it and i do it um, i'm going to give it's going to feel good personally and i'm going to find new space to play in and ways to be um, but i'm going to give somebody else permission um and that's the, that's, especially if you're doing dinners in the Midwest, you're like, you're not going to do it for yourself. Uh, you're going to do it for somebody else. Cause that's just part of the Midwest. <laughs> but let me tell you how to do it for somebody else. You're going to give somebody else permission if you're vulnerable. So do it. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I can do that.
0: <laughs> yeah. it's uh, At some of our Junto retreats, one of the, the callbacks that we always usually reference is the idea that we, we even use the term authenticity. And as we say, yeah. real authenticity is an act of service in this container the same way that you have a dinner table it will have you know the, the great outdoors but in this container that your authenticity is an act of service because it creates the space to liberate someone else's and in that reminder when people see that when there's a share and i can imagine that night and i've experienced it because i've sat at one of these dinners but when someone goes there or you see someone like a bezos cry it creates the space where now someone else can go there. It's an, it's an inherently like brave act and and one of service, I think, which is so beautiful.
1: Well, and I've seen it in a lot of, I, I see it in the everyday. I see it change. Um, these dinners change dynamics between, you know, mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and vice versa, um, where you watch and you're like, oh, you've actually never communicated in this way, this honestly, um, this openly with you know, these people that are the closest to you in your life, like, and you're seeing how, how good it feels. Cause sometimes you'll do that in like family therapy. It doesn't feel so good <laughs> or couples therapy. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't. But the nice thing about the container around this conversation about death is um, there isn't a, that much um, interpersonal drama. Uh, it's really kind of, we have a kind of a singular relationship to death um, and no one's an expert. Um, and, and so it has this kind of, this, um, this safety and this ability to go really, um, profoundly deep, obviously. I'm, I mean, I was doing a dinner recently. We, we partnered with the Cleveland Clinic as, um, as you know, and, um, because of our mutual friend Adrian Boise and, um, I was doing a dinner, um, with the, um, with the heart surgeons, um, with the cardiothoracic department, and it took a lot to get to um, to them because they were very resistant. Um, many dinners moving on up the or around the um, you know the ladder <laughs> um, of surgeons and care units, et cetera, And we'd at the cardiothoracic team, which this is where they invented um, heart transplant surgery and first and then, you know, were successful to complete it. So pretty, uh, and I'm with some of those doctors, right, from those teams and there's like 75 of them and I'm scared shitless, right? Like they don't, they're, they're, like, they're literally like, who is this guy? And he's not a doctor and he's not a medical expert and he's here and he's telling us that we should talk about death. And for some reason I've ended up at this table because so-and-so said it was a good idea, but I don't trust this experience Um, we save lives and you know and I was like doing my introductory talk I was like so you you rightfully understand medicine as something that's saves that saves lives right Um, that's pretty clear you practice medicine to save lives to um to you know keep lives long and healthy and just to you know to beat off death. And I was like, well, tonight I want you to do something for me. I want you to imagine that death itself is the medicine. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the thinking about and talking about and feeling through our relationship to death. That actually is really powerful medicine. Um, and it, it, they got it right. And it, it was, it was one of those moments where, you're like, I can't believe I just said that. I'm, I'm either gonna, I'm gonna be burned on this steak or <laughs> like, it's gonna be a really good thing. And it was a really good thing because then they all shared so profoundly, and it, I, I can only imagine the impact it's had on those care teams.
0: Um, so. and, then, so, and outside of the what well, we've kind of talked about already of death being this the spearhead to open up real authentic vulnerability between groups in in this kind of setting. I'm curious when you say death, death is the medicine. It's when we think about how a conversation about death can evolve our relationship with death and just with life as well. I'm curious how does, and how can a conversation about death be important in our lives? Why is it important?
1: Yeah. I mean, if it's not something that you're engaged with, um there there's a lot that you're denying yourself right it's like you walk into baskin robbins and you just are like no i only want to know about two not <laughs> not the 36 right you're like you keep the 30, 34, i just want to know about the two flavors and 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 death is one of those things that it, it expands our life um, it's paradoxical and truth generally is Um but Confucius had this great um saying and you know thing that he wrote, which was um in every life there are two lives and the second one begins when we realize that we only have one. Hmm. (laughs) Which is Hmm. it's kind of hard math. Um but it also just very clearly points out that once we you know, we realize the whole uh you know, hashtag YOLO sense And it doesn't even matter how you you know whether it's through Confucius or through hashtags. Um, the uh, that once we come into um, a relationship with our mortality, um, we we get access to a lot of things. Um, one of them is um, having priorities, having clarity. We're suffering from a um, you know a a mental or a public health crisis called the lack of meaning. Right? Like it's people are taking all kinds of medications to help with the fact that meaning and why they're here and what the signific- significance of their life is is, right? That's a huge mental health and just public health mm-hmm. crisis I would say. Um and if you want to know why you're here, you know, face the fact that you're not always going to be here. Um, it will clarify things um, faster than anything else um, and and then there's just there's a whole other long list of reasons like I said like for the vulnerability um, the access to expression authenticity um, we find love and we find human connection when we're being authentic when we're being vulnerable um, we find connections um, by being, without being those things but are are they deep connections and do they feed us are they nutritious right um and so there's there's then there's just the practical like um dying can be very expensive if you haven't expressed your wishes um from a medical side they'll throw everything at you or your loved ones even if you don't want it um from a planning side you don't want to plan a funeral without knowing what your loved one wanted because you'll tend to spend a lot more out of grief or just out of not knowing um and you also won't know how to honor them if we don't tell people in our lives how to honor us we're in lengthening their grief um because a big part of grief is being able to do something meaningful for the person we've lost and they haven't told us what to do and i mean it can be as simple as a playlist families get into massive fights about what should be on the playlist after the death of a father or mother or loved one. It's like, you know, let's not do that. Let's not, let's not get in a fight over who gets the teapot. (laughs) Like let's um, think about if we think about these things and we make a plan, um, we, our life gets bigger, it gets brighter, it gets more vital. Um, we become more calm and, um, And we're giving a gift to those people that we're leaving behind for
0: sure yeah and i and i want to section off you know kind of the tail end of this conversation to dive into the pragmatic as it relates to rituals around end of life and what people don't know about dying you just alluded to it about how it can be very very expensive without a plan and uh, you know can can lead to people not really knowing what to do so i really do want to get into some of the pragmatic aspects of end of life. In a little bit, and I'm curious, like why we're on just this, or transforming our relationship with death. If you were to make that personal and help us understand, like what what was your personal relationship with death before it became such a significant part of your life with with death over dinner and EOL?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was um, it 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 wasn't avoidant. because it had played such a big part in my childhood um there was certainly a lot of unprocessed grief um the i'd say the big change in my life with um with death and i and i'm not one of those people who was terrified of the topic um you know spent a lot of time reading about um death and end of life and uh, from a buddhist perspective and from a um hindu perspective etc um and native american perspective but so it had been part of my um my way of being in the world but the great thing about death over dinner and um and now eol um is that it it turned into a kind of a daily reminder um and which i'm not i don't think it should be for all people it's not what what i'm expecting but that for some it, it is a really good tool. Um, what you know, Memento Mori um, is the this reminder that we're going to die. Notion is a is a great way to be in gratitude, um, to wake up with gratitude. To um, you know, and I don't even think it's like live every day like it's your last. And <laughs> like, uh, um, it's, it's just that like it's a day. It's a day. Yeah, I mean that sounds exhausting. Like I don't want to live every day like it's my last. Like some days I just want to like lay around and watch netflix and that's totally fine um and not be like oh is this Am my live is this carpe diem
0: <laughs> we, mickey mickey and i had a little art project that we created i don't know if you know about this but we we created this as kind of our our uh what's it called when you bring a gift for like a dinner party it's called a um there's like a good name for it right just oh, yeah. when you go to the party well, whatever, where you bring like a bottle of wine and we don't really drink. And so we created these books and they're just called, Holy Shit, We're Alive. And it says, Holy it says Holy Shit, We're Alive on the cover. And it's got 365 pages and every page just says, Holy Shit, We're Alive. <laughs> and so that's that's what we drop. And we say, but you have to keep it face out on your bookshelf. And so I think like we've given out hundreds of those. I'll send you one after this. That's, that's uh, great. And yeah, so... And- that's kind of
1: we wanted death over dinner, or let's have dinner and talk about death. Was the big name It was like, in and of itself, it's like your book cover. It's a reminder. Um, they're they're already having the conversation internally, even if they don't have a dinner. Like everybody yeah. listening to this, you you are now talking about death in your in your head, or or you're completely ignoring us. <laughs> That's just what I do.
0: And so to paint a picture for people, um, you had talked about shifting a relationship with a, a parent. I have a story actually about having one of these conversations with my dad a couple of years ago, I'll tell you about in a little bit. Um, but if you were to paint a picture for people, how does, how does it look to set that container and just, you know, quick pointer, you can go to the EO website or death over dinner, I believe, right. To download the, the guidelines and and create one of these for yourself, which is super simple, lays out the questions. And so if you were to, for our listeners, just give them you know, the, the summary of what that, that looks like. And also, if you were to point to a few of your personal favorite questions or prompts that, that you loop into that space, what are some of your favorite prompts that you put there and, and how does the space create it?
1: Yeah, so uh, it's a hard um, space to create, uh, you know, generally speaking, um, because our culture has done a terrible job. Of normalizing this conversation, giving you great opportunities, making it comfortable, and so um, you know that's and that's essentially why we created Death Over Dinner. Like, say, no, it's a thing, it's a movement. I read about it in the New York Times, etc. Right? These people have been doing it all over the world. Um, it's 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 safe. The water is fine. Um, and that we wanted to be the blameable third party. Um, and and so if you go to the website, very easy to get you'll get your invitation material that you can send to people via email. Um, you'll have homework to send them. So you all do the same kind of homework based upon what kind of conversation you want to have. Um, and then you get a script and then you have next steps. Um, and it, the other dinner really does create the container for you because it, we've considered most of these, the details, um, and it, it always works, which is amazing. We have no, maybe had one, um, example over a zoom death dinner where things started to get heated about a racial topic. Um, and that's the only negative feedback we've had. Um, but in general, if you're wanting to talk about, um, end of life with parents and loved ones, um, et cetera, um, and you're not, and they haven't agreed to come to a death dinner and you've tried that or et cetera, which is fine. That's, it's a self-selection tool. It's not meant for everybody but you're like on a hike or you are in the car um, or maybe you've tried to talk about these things and you've found resistance. Um, The framework that I like to use for that is instead of thinking about it as this binary, I tried, they said, no, I'm done. Right. Um, Think about it like um, courtship, sex, or, um, or getting a job. Right. Um, If we were going for a job, you know, looking for a job and, and somebody says no, and it's like, I'm done. Right. Or we're, um, you know, courtship is essentially consensual basis, but you still use all of your resources, right? Like you use charm and you bring flowers and you think about the person and what they might like and how you might appeal to them. Right. Same thing with a conversation about that. Think about the person. Like, does your dad like football? Does your mom like football? Like, do you, was there a, a famous football player that died recently and there wasn't a funeral, hadn't been a funeral plan or, you know, like, what is the way in? Not just like, we really need to talk about this dad. Um, <laughs> <and> so <laughs> these are oblique, you know, like, how do you warm them up? Can you send them an article? Um you know, like what's on your bucket list? If you're trying to think about, you know, what do you want your last meal to be? What song would you want played at your funeral? Or these are kind of more of those icebreaker conversations.
0: Well, I think what's you—you you started this whole conversation by talking about the importance of having purpose, and I think one of the things that I've found when it comes to having challenging conversations with parents, especially those where we encounter some resistance, is articulating even our own purpose for having the conversation of like, I want to talk about this because I think it will X. And it's not necessarily take a relationship to another, but it's because it will make me feel closer to you or help me to understand myself more clearly, or it will help me to understand like how I can feel connected to you after you're gone or having a sense of conversational purpose and articulating that, especially if you're fortunate to have parents that, that, love you and are present in your lives. They understand that pushing their own boundaries is going to in some way kind of help you. A lot of times that will give parents the push yeah. to do something that's uncomfortable. And sure. which, I
1: think that's like, I, in, instead of being transactional, I need this from you. You need to do that. Like I'm scared, dad. Like I, I'm, I'm scared that I'm not going to know what to do. Um, It's going to, you know, I'm going to be so overwhelmed with a lot. Like I I need, I need some help. Right. That's a different orientation than just like, um, I can't believe you haven't done this. We have to have the talk. It's, it's, you're right. Talk about your own experience
0: and and, and why you're. And what if, what if you were to think about some of your, your favorite questions that have come up either, kind of off the cuff just to spark these types of conversations or in a proper kind of uh death over dinner conversation? What are some that, that come to mind?
1: Yeah. I mean, my favorite, especially if I'm with a group of people who um, are a little bit closed up um, because they are in general just the night, whatever it is. Um, I'll tend to pull out. Um, you haven't, you have an hour. You've just found out you have an hour left to live. Um, you, you can only make a few phone calls. Who are you going to call and what are you going to tell them? Right. And that, that for many people, and sometimes we'll do the, you have 30 days left to live. How do you feel?
0: I love, I love that one, man. I'd love that one. I've never heard that one.
1: Yeah, that's great. And it, I mean, it makes it really that you get emotionally really tapped into, um, and it's very personal. Like, it's not like everyone responds. I have to talk to my kids or I have to blah, blah, blah. Um, but that uh, now they are actually thinking about not being here. Um, and their time is limited and, and, and people go there, right. They really put themselves into that position and they learn a lot about themselves, um, when answering that question. But yeah, I mean, I it out to the 30 days if I feel like it, A group is already there and, they, you know, if you have 30 days left to live, how are you going to spend it? And what is your last hour like? Um, Who's around you? How are you feeling? Um, And and sometimes, you know, it really opens up the sense of empathy around the people that are in their lives that, you know, are closer to the end. um, And how to support them um, because now they've actually gone through an emotional exercise of thinking about it. Uh, so, I mean, there's so much we're, we're babies at this conversation. Um, it's like, you know, we mentioned food earlier. Um, same thing happened to death as it, as it did to food In the food world, we industrialized it. Um, and we thought that that was a good idea in the death world. We medicalized it. Um, and we thought that was a good idea. Um, both are community acts like food is an act of community. And if it's not an active community, it doesn't have nutrition. Like, but literally, we, you know, we s- stripped nutrition out of our food. And same thing with death. If we hide it away or birth, um, you know, with the the, re- the rebirth of birth has been so important. Um, but with death, we've hidden it away and we medicalized it. Um, and when you don't give people access to it and you don't make it a community act, you strip it of its nutrition and the grief is longer, harder, messier, um, and, and just um, it's not as, uh, it doesn't have the opportunity to change us in the ways that death um, you know has its capacity to, in the, in the good ways.
0: And, and so it, I can sense this natural transition in terms of where, again, your orientation is from having a conversation about death to now exploring the industry of death and kind of like the the mechanisms that are facilitating you know this transition that we're all going to experience and so when did when did you start to become aware of what was happening there and when were you alerted that something had shifted not for the better
1: well pretty quickly i mean we we were doing actually immediately all this work like hey let's get people to have this conversation because you know seventy-five percent of people are dying at um, in hot not at home and um, you know or seventy-five percent of people want to die at home and only twenty-five percent of people do right so it was like wow half of the United States is not getting what they want um, so let's get them to talk about it express it change those numbers those numbers have already changed there's now more people dying at home than anywhere else um, which is a massive shift um, from because of so much effort. Um, just or,
0: And just so I understand, and that, is that because more people are dying in hospitals?
1: No, no, more, more people are dying outside of hospitals now or actually going home to die or dying in hospice or, um, alternative. Most more people were primarily dying in hospitals, but now they're dying. Um, they're the, the primary place that people die is not hospitals. Right. Uh, and you know, we go down all the statistics, but it says that there's been this amazing sea change, um, around people dying in places that are more appropriate um, places to die.
0: And what was, what was the catalyst for that?
1: There's been a lot, a lot. I mean, it's projects like the conversation project and death over dinner and palliative care and hospice and um, an incredible shift in um, the, the, the end of life space. But I mean, we're like, awesome, let's empower people, let's get them to have these conversations and make these choices and know that they want to be like an active, engaged part in their making their own decisions. And then like, oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> now, if I go into to try to or create a plan <laughs> to um, figure out um, what I'm going to do for uh, senior assisted living, memory care, um, hospice, funerals, you know, memorials, grief. Like there's there is just a, a, a sea of, um, of providers out there with their individual websites and their different services, but nothing connecting all of them. And it was, so it was a little bit like we set people up for failure. <laughs> like um, now you, now we've, you know, if, if I convince you to go get life insurance um, you, you can go find life insurance right now, really yeah. easily and feel pretty good about it. Um, right now, if I convince you to go get an end of life plan, um, I wouldn't have had many places to send you. And so, so that's why we took a step back and then started building that. It's like, <laughs> we felt like we owed it to people.
0: So again, it's, and it really, from my initial explorations, it, it is this melding of the, the pragmatic, here's how we're planning, here's who we need to find to, to make this part of our lives kind of more seamless, purposeful, healthy, like everything. But then also some of the, the theory of, of, you know, like, I guess a little more of kind of like the, the spiritual and kind of the esoteric of that as well. And so in your own words, like what, what is EOL? What's end of life platform to you?
1: Yeah, well, I think you captured it. It's the it's the practical, and it's also the the spiritual. That's sort of the um, the expansive, the awakening. Um, but it doesn't one doesn't get in the way of the other, right? Um, somebody can come to EOL, and for those people who are listening, and are like, "What are these three letters?" And um, it's just EOL community is the URL, and um, it just launched, but it it really is the whole continuum of care um, all in one place um, from early planning to a critical or a terminal condition um, or just a natural death all the way through to um, who are the best providers for funerals, memorials, cremation, being turned into compost, being turned into a tree, um, being part of a redwood um, forest, uh, turn into coral, you name it, right? To who are the best people working in grief, etc.? And then how can I organize my personal adventure? It's very much set up like a choose your own adventure, but simple and there. And we have literally, you know, already all the best providers in the space and growing every day. Um, Cause I didn't want to just create like, here's your checklist and that's great. And then now you have to go, find all of the people that you need what at the time that you need them wanted to have it be one place you can come back to but then if you want to go deeper and um and really do some work around grief um and do some healing um or you want to um you know learn how to become a death doula or end-of-life doula or you want to expand around your consciousness um and or look into death meditations and courses and spirituality as it relates you know we wanted that to be there as well I mean one you know as we're having this conversation we're just a day after launch um, within four hours of the site being public a 73 year old 73 year old woman from georgia posted on the conversation it is a social network so you can post conversation she posted she found the site was able to create a profile um and posted found the conversation space and posted i'm a 73 year old woman living in georgia i'm of good health and mind but i you know i want to have a green burial preferably on my daughter's land in texas um and be buried there i don't even know if it's legal or what we'd have to do to make this happen please advise. And within minutes, the president of the National Home Funeral Alliance (laughs) is responding to her um, and telling her exactly what she needs to know, giving her a personal number. Um, And then Garrick, who started Kitchen Table Conversations, as a grief expert, also chiming in. And then another woman says, this has been amazing, Nancy, I think her name was, and I have a piece of land in Texas that I want to turn into um, a conservation green burial. Who do I talk to? And then three other experts in the field are like, call me. We can help you tomorrow or today. I was like, oh, my God, it works. <laughs> like, it is already working. And, you know, it made me cry. It was just like this woman, Nancy, in, in Georgia, we just made her life and her family's life so much better. Yeah. You know, they're going to have a really powerful experience. And she might not have had a place to ask that question. Or got the type of answer that was empowering. So,
0: and I'm curious as you've got a more holistic understanding of the—I'm calling it like the the end of life industry, death industry. But yeah, um, what what have you found that's been most surprising or inspiring for you in terms of things that are happening? You just mentioned green burials, which I think even a lot of our listeners probably aren't even sure what that is, or or tree burials. Like, what's what's happening to transform that industry? You know, from a, a tactile standpoint, like that, to, to green cemeteries and burial suits, to bringing it more into the community context, like you had talked before, what's what's happening there that's really inspiring and surprising to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, can be summed up in almost one word: is beauty. Right there is there is there is beauty there, um, and, and by that I mean that um, instead of um when we think about dying we think like, okay, I'm in a hospital, I'm in an ICU and then there's somebody who I die and then somebody that the doctors don't know comes and takes my body and takes it to somebody that my you know, a funeral director that they don't know and then there's a funeral where there's you know, in this place that I've never my family's never been before, has no relationship to and I'm in a plot maybe or I'm cremated and then they don't know what to do with my ashes, like this, you know, and then there's a memorial and it feels a little stilted and weird. So these are kind of some of the things that come up for us. And then it's like, wait a second, there can be a, a vast amount for, of expression and beauty and opportunity for people to emote, grieve, heal, connect, um, celebrate, be inspired by, um, miss dearly, all of these things. And it can look. It can look a lot different than it has um, traditionally or conventionally. Traditionally, it looked pretty beautiful, Um, but conventionally. And just for one, like medical directors need to know funeral directors, need to know grief therapists, need to know, you know, financial um, and insurance planners. Like they all need to know each other and have visibility to each other. And they need to know the best stuff that's happening in the space. And currently they do. Like they don't, and they're not, they have no visibility to each other. And so, and so, I mean, with EOL, we're like, let's put them all on the platform together and, and they'll see each other and they'll know about each other. And then they can give these gifts of beautiful op- opportunities or alternatives or options to people. Um, I mean, one is parting stone is one of my favorite um, discoveries. So one Somebody has cremated, you get a, you know, a, a box of ashes and you may have paid for a more expensive urn or some sort of, you know, and then, and then what do you do with it? Or, um, or you have the ashes and then you think that you're going to spread them somewhere meaningful, which is a great idea. Um, and, and then this guy, Justin Crow, um, was like, well, what if you want, what if we made rocks? What if we solidified in some way those those cremated remains? And he figured out a way to, with very few um, additives and nothing weird, um, turn ashes into these beautiful stones that get polished. And it just so happens that every body produces a slightly different color stone. Wow. Right? And these things are, like, some of them are, like, aquamarine and um, <laughs> amber and and then you can, you have, like, you know, you get like 20 to 30, depending upon how many, you know, how big the person was, et cetera, of these um, hand size or, you know, it can hold in your hand stones that you can distribute and people can hold, literally hold the person, um, take them with them um, and, or, and then just, you know, if you want to take that stone and cast it into an ocean, it's a little bit different experience than like, <laughs> Trying to scoop out the ashes and have it blow back in your face, which is, is what happens. But um, it was just this beautiful thing. You no, know, and people don't know about it, right? And it's um, are you going to be turned into a diamond too? Uh, <laughs> Extraordinary.
0: <laughs>
1: um, you probably they so, were on Shark Tank.
0: <laughs> but, and so, and I'm curious. So, for you, like, what what has become clear about how you want to exit and how you want that to look and what you want people to do for you once you're gone. Have you had, like, had any moments of clarity in terms of what that looks like for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, I'm a little bit like, uh, uh, Charlie in the chocolate factory or, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so many, like every day I'm like, Oh, there's this and there's that. So um, the, uh, what I'm more, I, I guess more importantly than my own ceremony, um, and what I get turned into, it's that I want to die knowing that people are expressing themselves around this and in, in extraordinary ways that it, that there is beauty. And then there is creativity, um, in, in these rituals, um, and that people are able to grieve big and loud and not be shamed for it and celebrate people in a big and loud and or quiet and subtle and meaningful way. And, um, and then also just to get the nutrients back into it, get the meaning that they need so that they can, um, that they can move on with their lives in, in a powerful way. So that's, I'd say more like, uh, hopefully my death is, uh, is, is witness to that. Like a total reimagining, a um, a completely different manifestation of the rituals surrounding people's deaths, and you know, and then I'll probably just go the completely standard route. I'm just kidding.
0: Too much pressure. Too much pressure. (laughs) We've got time, or maybe not. Who knows? (laughs) Um, And and Michael, you have one daughter, is that right? I have two I have two. Have two daughters. And so I'm curious how this conversation has integrated into your relationship with your daughters.
1: Oh, it's, it's amazing. They're, um, you know, they're like enough dad, enough, enough, <laughs> you know, not is not interested, but, um, but then if, if I'm slightly adjacent to the conversation and someone asks them about what does your dad do? Yeah. Um, or you know why is this work important? Or you you cannot like I start crying when I hear it because oh, they get it right. Yeah. They literally. Um, I told my eleven-year-old about the the seventy-three-year-old woman from Georgia, Nancy. She got like tears in her eye, and she was like, "Dad, it's working," you know. <laughs> This is what you wanted. It's already happening, and I was like, I didn't even have to finish my lines. She knew, and she like gave me this big hug and was like, "Wow, okay, you you've been listening."
0: <laughs> well, so you know, one of the things that I always love to do is to kind of do these little thought experiments. Is we're we're bringing the conversation to a close, and it's so. If how old are your daughters now? Eleven and nineteen. Okay, so 11 and 19. And so if you could offer them some wisdom on death and what you think, what you hope they they consider, that they know about death, and you knew that they would receive whatever you had to offer them, mm. what would you want to make sure that they knew?
1: Well, I'll frame this around my death, right? Yeah. Um, so... And and less about their own. Um, but what I if I was going to die in a week, you know, or answer that you die in an hour conversation, what what are you going to do? Um, I would want them to know that they had my tribe, um, but not just generally speaking. I would want them to know who they go to when their heart is broken. I want them to know who they should, I might lose it here a little bit, but who they should call when they got the first job or the accepted to the, that college or, or didn't right. And who they can celebrate with or who they can grieve with. Um, who They can take acid with who they, you know, like who they should call when they're ready to do some, you know, to do an ayahuasca ceremony. It's not like <laughs> my daughters are destined for psychedelics, but um you know, like, who um, who do they call when they fell in love for the first time or are they heartbroken? Um, and then I also want the, those, you know, that my friends to know that that's their responsibility, right? I, I want them to know that, you know, they call Zerowsky at this instance, or Rosenthal at this instance, or you name it, right? <laughs> Melissa Palmer for this, and like uh, all of these people in our lives that we share in this community. Like, um, I want both. I want them to know that um, that the things that I could provide if I were here um, are probably better provided in these different people in the in in, in the community if I spread it out. Um, and I, and I didn't have that, right? Um, I didn't, I, I thought it just kind of went mute. Um, and and that's, I, I want them to have a roadmap. I want them to know um,
0: specifically who's there for them. That's beautiful. And if you had an opportunity, if there's anything else that you'd want our listeners to know, about the conversation that we've had we did so beautifully from kind of your, your personal path to convening and building community to death and all the way through the industry and some of the more pragmatic elements. But I'm curious if there's anything else that you, that you feel you want to offer to the audience just for the conversation to feel complete on your end. Anything come to mind?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're not afraid of this conversation. Um, you may be listening to us and be like, oh, I don't like talking or thinking about death. Um, and it's okay. that There might be some confusion around. It's okay to be afraid of death. Um, it's okay to be slightly uncomfortable um, talking about what you want for your last wishes, etc. But I think ultimately, you know how to have this, how to talk about this. Um, the that people, that it's in them. It's within, just like how being a father is, is already in you. This is a conversation that's in us. It has always been. It is as much human as singing or laughter is. Um, And we just, we've just forgotten.
0: There you go. And not only is it in you, but thanks to you, we've got these helpful guides to actually make this happen. So for anyone listening, um, I really do hope that you take some time and especially even if we're in lockdown and you got to do it virtually um, but in times where we're starved for a connection, you know, this is a, a very tangible path to create some in your lives. And I hope that people will not only explore death over dinner, but EOL, and we'll link everything in the show notes and Heb, thank you so much, brother. I knew it was going to be good and you did not disappoint. So I look forward to, uh, being at one of your dinners in person sometime soon here.
1: I can't wait. Thanks for everything you do, Andrew. Thanks brother. back at you.